This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. J.R. Eskelson is a writer and reporter for Top Drawer Soccer, one of the few long-lasting media outlets that cover American youth soccer. His specialty is covering the U.S. youth national teams and college soccer, although these days his Twitter feed is filling up with information about the former and less and less about the latter. We have a funny story and history together. We used to run into each other quite often at StubHub Center during youth national team training camps and uh, development academy playoffs, and and the list goes on and on. And we'd share the hill together on the grass fields, uh, and the games and practices would just be right in front of us, and those practices and games would feature some of our country's best players and best coaches. And I kind of laugh when I say the hill, because if anybody's been to StubHub, they understand what the hill is. It's that hill... Uh, like right next to the parking lot where you sit in the 90 degree weather and you try to find every inch of shade, whether it's from a light post or from like the few trees that are out there. And if you don't find, if you're not lucky enough to find any of the shade, (coughs) you just, uh, yeah, you, you cover up with whatever t-shirt you have that day and, and you hope that you don't get too sunburned. So if, if anybody's been to Step Up, they absolutely know what that hill is. It's pretty funny. Um, but JR is actually the one who hired me, and I say hired with air quotes, to take photos of a U.S. Youth National Team camp one time. When I say hired, I mean that I stopped by his house just south of Santa Barbara to pick up a top drawer soccer t-shirt on my way down to LA because I was going to go to the national team camp no matter what. And I was either going to watch from the bushes and get told to leave, or I had this other opportunity that JR hooked me up with where I could wear this t-shirt, which was like the golden ticket, like the Willy Wonka golden ticket. And that allowed me to go on the field during the training sessions at StubHub and take photos. And I even went as far as interviewing the coach. I think I've talked about that before here, but it was a really funny experience, but it was all in the pursuit of learning. And JR is a coach himself. He shares in this episode some stories about going through the grinder that is Southern California soccer. He's had the privilege of watching and covering some of this country's best coaches, best players, and best teams. And one of those coaches being Brian Clyburn. In this episode, he shares his experiences and his stories, specifically what some of his biggest influences have been and his feelings about youth soccer and soccer media in this country. And just a reminder that this podcast is funded by the 343 Coaching Education Program. That's the program that gives you insider access, showing you exactly how a coach built a real team from the time that they were nine years old until the players started to sign professional contracts as teenagers. If you're paying close attention, you might have seen that one of those players recently scored his first professional hat trick at just 15 years old. But what went into the making of those back-to-back-to-back Surf Cup trophies when Surf Cup was at its peak? What type of training did those American kids get before they went head-to-head with the real FC Barcelona Academy? How did these kids get that good that they are not only signing pro contracts as teens, but like I just mentioned, scoring hat tricks? Well, you get to see all of that inside of the 343 membership program. It's all on full display and available for you to learn and study 24-7. No actors, no scripts, no BS, no fluff. You get to see the real drills. You get to hear the real coaching points. And you get to see the real results on the field. 
So if you enjoy this podcast and if you enjoy the education 343 provides in the free online course, the next step is waiting for you. You can find out more by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. I hope that you enjoy this episode with J.R. Eskelson. JR, sorry, man. <laughs> it's no problem. I appreciate you being patient with me, Eric. Eric was saying some. He he was saying some very very good stuff that needs to be said about the U.S. transfer market and the lack of activity for I mean lack of better terms uh, that that takes place in the United States and and it's something that I think you could provide a very unique perspective on as well. So I didn't want to cut him off. Um, but I knew I had you waiting in the whims. It was it was a very weird balancing act I was doing right now. Yeah, I understand. Um, <laughs> so tough I, spots when you have back to back interviews. Oh, dude, this is it's been a crazy morning. So I've been um, going on two hours and forty five minutes straight right now. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Iron Man. Yeah, and and the only good thing or bad thing, I guess it's good and bad, but I have a hard deadline for for our interview because champions league starts at 11 45. So I, I <laughs> we need to wrap before then. <laughs> All right. We can keep it as long or as short as you want. Cool. Um, yeah. So I, I'm already recording by the way. Is that all right? That's perfect. Okay. So if we get into a spot where, where you can't talk, uh, either just pivot out of it. However, however you uh, gracefully can, or, um, or just tell me stop and I can go back and edit out in, in post-production. But, um, I don't, I don't think we have anything too much, uh, too, too dirty that we can't talk about. Um, but one, yeah. one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to bring you on the show is that you and, and your guys at, at top drawer, you guys have a very, uh, good perspective on what's happening at kind of the, the higher end or upper end of the youth soccer landscape and, and, Specifically, you guys do a very good job of identifying uh, players and tracking players, and and so I'm, I'm, I guess we can start with exactly what you do, and and maybe if you can tell me a little bit about why you do it and what got you into specifically what you do uh, on a day to day basis. Sure. Uh, so I originally got started at this. I was writing for another site called Goal.com. And I, I just had a passion for the youth game, and I just enjoyed watching it at a certain level. So I just started writing about youth soccer for them. And then after a year or two of doing that, Top Tier Soccer approached me, and I moved over to Top Tier Soccer. And it was a natural fit, because Top Tier Soccer already at the time was the number one source for youth and club soccer news. So it sort of went along with uh, sort of my ambitions for what I wanted to do. And I've been with Top Drawer Soccer uh, for seven years now. Um, for, for people who maybe don't understand what Top Drawer Soccer does, uh, we, we cover the youth game at an elite level. Uh, we're talking about like the higher end club teams, the development academy teams, the ECNL teams. Uh, we do coverage of the youth national teams as well as college soccer on the men's and women's side. Tell me a little bit about how 
top drawer soccer has changed from the time that you joined seven years ago until now. And I'm asking that with the idea that it has changed. I don't know for sure that it has, but I, I have a, I have a feeling that it maybe has. Sure. It's definitely changed. And the development academy has kind of shifted uh, the way we focus on things. I think when I first started at top drawer soccer, uh, soccer in the United States was a little bit more of a wild, wild west. There were a little bit more spread out in terms of where the best players were, where the best teams were, that sort of thing. I feel like in the past five years or so, the MLS academies within the development academy have done a better job of scouting on their own, taking their own initiative and finding the best players, uh, trying to bring those players into their own academies at an earlier age. And with that change, it's sort of shifted our focus, too, because if we're focused on the elite youth player. We're focusing more on those types of teams rather than the teams we were probably looking at in the past. Uh, my first few years with Top Jersey Soccer, I think I spent a considerable amount of time talking about some of like the negative or the, the not, not necessarily the positive parts of the Development Academy since they came in there and sort of destroyed the ecosystem a lot of uh, areas in terms of club soccer. But with U.S. soccer's backing, the Development Academy was sort of able to do that because it was their way or the highway for a lot of clubs. And uh, it worked out for them because they were able to take this approach. And then we sort of followed in line with uh, covering what they were going after. What, what do you mean by destroyed the ecosystem? I'm curious to get your perspective on that. I think there were a lot of clubs that were doing successful things in terms of developing players uh, previously from, from areas. We'll just focus on Southern California for right now. I think there were clubs in that area that were doing a good job, but they didn't necessarily have the economic resources or the administrative advantages that some of the development academies had. And they were passed over for places inside the development academy for teams that had more money, but not necessarily the history of developing players. So it, it worked out, but then some of those clubs folded and then some of the other clubs, it was just kind of like uh, a system of where the, the best clubs weren't necessarily selected for the development academy, but the clubs that were selected for the development academy started getting the best players. How do, how do you cover that or how do you highlight that or how did you highlight that, I guess? I think I spent some time uh, with the clubs that were getting passed over, trying to figure out the reasons why they were passed over, and trying to look at the understanding from the Development Academy, the U.S. soccer perspective of why they weren't looking at these teams and why they went for these other teams. What What were some of the reasons that you that you found, or were there were there common themes that you were I mean, that you were discovering? At, at the end of the day, it, it, a lot of it comes down to money. Um, I mean, there, there's some that will say a lot of it comes down to connections, too. But the development economy is a massive investment. Like, these clubs have to spend a considerable amount of money just getting the players to and from games. They have to make this huge bond commitment so that there's a huge penalty if they drop out of the development academy. So mm -hmm. it was just these, these clubs didn't have these economic uh, resources to make that type of thing happen. And it, it, that economic like um, safe hold was something that protected the development academy from having made clubs that only had two or three good teams. They, they needed those clubs that had all five good teams at the time. So <clears throat> I, I think at the end it, it worked out for the development academy, but it also left these other teams like way behind. What about now in more recent events that the development academy has 
started to focus on the girls' side of the game, where before they they did not. So ECNL kind of came in and took a, a foothold, a very strong foothold, and especially in Southern California, where where you and I both reside. And, and then all of a sudden, the Development Academy comes in and, and you know starts their their girls' programs. What has been your observation of how that has all transpired, and and are there any are there any things that really jumped out at you from the beginning that were either very good positives or very bad negatives? I, I think that ECNL was doing an excellent job for what they were able to accomplish with the staff that they had. I think the the women's technical side, the women's national team technical directors and, and the staff on that side looked at the ECNL and saw, well, we could make this better. We could make a better environment for our female soccer players to play in we can follow the, the model that the boys have put in place. And by doing that, they sort of inserted themselves into a market that you mentioned the ECNL had done an excellent job with before and had made quite a few of the top clubs happy. So the Girls Development Academy steps in, they set all these standards and requirements, and not all of the Girls Development Academy clubs had previous history with the DA. Some of them did because they had boys programs, but not all of them did. So they went over to the girls' DA, and they weren't quite positive what they were getting into. And then these training requirements come up, and this time commitment comes up, and all of a sudden these clubs are starting to panic a little bit because it's it's a huge investment from both a player standpoint but also a coaching standpoint. These coaches are coaching four or five days a week during the week, and then they're usually committed both days on the weekend. And the clubs had approached it with the resources financially of paying the coaches the same as what they were paying in the ECNL, which doesn't have the same time commitment or, or the same in terms of like what's going to be your compensation. So uh, a lot of the difficulty and hurdles that the Girls Development Academy is going through right now is from a club standpoint, these clubs don't have the financial resources to pay the coaches they had in place. And the coaches want to go back to the previous system with the ECNL because they could have that break for high school where they could make even more money coaching a high school team at the same time. And the girls' DA has this, this hurdle to overcome because I, I think you look at the girls' DA and not every player there wants to be the next Mallory Pugh. Most of the players there want to be the next Ashley Sanchez who goes to UCLA for four years and is a star at UCLA. And ECNL was developing the next Ashley Sanchez as they were developing those types of players. The next Mallory Pugh is that player who's the 0.01% player who, who has that determination to skip college and trailblaze her own path. The, the Lindsay Horans of the world. Those are super rare on the girls' side. I think on the boys' side, you have quite a few more of those players who have that type of mentality who are ready to just jump to the professional game. And the girls don't necessarily have that same mentality right now on the on that like edge of the elite so club soccer player. And I, I think that's one of the hurdles that the girls development Academy is dealing with at the, at the level, at the grassroots level. If, if I'm not mistaken, top tour soccer has like a, like a top 10, top 50, top 100 player rankings on both the, the men's or sorry, boys and girls side. I guess you can yes. say men, men's and women's side too. You guys cover college soccer. Um, but though those rankings you just mentioned something that that i don't think gets enough airtime so the difference in the end goal on the boy side and the girl side at this moment 
seems to be very different. And and you, I think you you highlighted it in, in the right way that the goal for a lot of ECNL players or the goal for ECNL maybe in general is to push those players into college programs. The goal for the boys DA programs and maybe the boy or the girls DA programs at this point uh, has now kind of shifted to producing professional players at a younger age. Um, I'm, I'm curious how top drawer soccer or how you or anybody in general, basically uh, that, that you associate with has, has kind of observed that, or if you have observed that, that change and, and how you kind of balance how you cover those two different things. I think the mentality is quite prevalent. Like just if you're talking with parents at a game, I think if you go to like a, a boys development academy game, there's obviously like less parents there and they're not necessarily that concerned about who's watching their, their son play. It, it's just like more about th- their son for the moment. And it doesn't really matter if there's uh, a scout or a college coach in attendance. But if you go to a girls event, I'm talking girls DA or girls ECNL, those parents are very concerned about who else is in attendance. And that's because they're looking at it from the perspective of this playing for this team will help my daughter get to this level. And for almost all of them, that level is division one soccer. I mean, there's a considerable amount of money on the line for for these players in terms of scholarship money. So, I mean, like a youth level, these are actually high pressure environments considering how many college coaches go to things and how they, they hand out scholarship money. So, for the girls, they, they look at it from this perspective that college soccer is there for them uh, to, to reach that plateau, and it's probably the end of the line. They don't maybe look past that. For the, for the boys, it's how, how do I get to a level where I can be seen at a professional realm? How can I be seen to become a professional player? So it, it's, it's that huge mentality gap in between the two genders and i think the girls da thought they would have players that would have that same mentality and i'm not sure they've found uh the right clubs to to harvest that yet the right clubs at a a big level they found certain clubs that do but i'm not sure they've found enough it's funny you mentioned like the amount of eyes that are on you know high level girls games and i i'm thinking back to when i was coaching a girls club team they were oh shit you were you 17 maybe at the time but we went to like those college showcase tournaments and i remember part of the like part of the shtick was to you know tell you how many college coaches were going to be in attendance watching those games and and you know they would you know put the little logos from the coaches and so as a young coach i was like 22 or 23 maybe i can't remember exactly I was starry-eyed at that point thinking like, oh my God, like there's going to be 60 college coaches there and I would be so excited to go take my teams to, to those tournaments. And you get there and it's like the third assistant coach for uh, a Division Two team from Wisconsin or something like that's there. And it's like, oh, well, fuck, that's actually not that exciting anymore. So. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the third coach and the coach is on the cell phone the whole time. Either texting <laughs> people or calling people. Yeah, I, no. yeah. And what I realized too is that those things are like little getaways for the coaches, like little, um, like mini, uh, like gatherings or parties for, for college coaches that, you know, for the most of the, most of the year, uh, are competing against each other. But in these moments, like, you know, maybe they're former teammates or maybe they played against each other when they were in college, but they get a chance to, you know, share a hotel and go to dinner or go to the bar. And it, it becomes like a fun, 
like outing for these college coaches to go to these tournaments. And it's not necessarily uh, hard work. I'm, I'm hesitant to say that, but it's not necessarily hard work for them to go and sit on a sideline and, like you said, be on their phone or you know take a couple notes. But it's a it's a fully funded trip to go and uh, to go and have some fun. Sometimes is my observation, and I could be completely off base, but that's what I've seen. Well, if you want to know which programs are getting better, or which programs are taking it seriously, you see which coaches are there for like the 8 a.m. game. Like no one wants to get up for the 8 a.m. game, but the coach who's there, who's focused, who's already ready to go in the morning are usually the ones who have the programs who are able to scout the actual talent, who are able to find the real players. And I I think, as you mentioned, uh, for a lot of these coaches, they go in with the mentality of, oh, we're we're getting a week away in Florida. We're getting a week away in California. Like what's going to happen for the most part, these jobs, these these college recruiting jobs have a built-in database. If you if you coach at a big school, you're getting thousands of emails from kids who want to come play for you. And then all you're doing is just promoting your club camp so that you can ID them when they're actually on campus. And then you just go from there. So I think a lot of these showcase events either serve as a harvesting tool to bring kids into their own camps, their own elite player ID camps or wherever they're calling them now, or it's for the the maybe 10% of the college coaches who take it super seriously and who want to scout those players and actually find the, the diamond in the rough out there. I want to ask you a question and maybe I should preface with, uh, because we, we didn't do like a pre-interview or anything like that. I don't really know what direction you will, you will take this question. And, and I don't know. Um, you, you might even need a, a second to think about an answer, but your your time of of covering soccer you've been exposed to a number of different situations uh you've had access to you know the a number of different coaches and players and families and and you've gotten a chance to travel and watch games all over the place when you started or from the time that you started until now what have you completely changed your mind about so what did you think that was like an absolute truth in in youth soccer eight, 10 years ago that, that you've completely changed your mind about today? I think when I started, I was strongly anti-development academy. I just felt that the, the structured approach of it didn't offer enough creativity to actually develop the elite talent of player. I, I felt like uh, it was almost like they were just developing uh, robots that fit this, the mold that U.S. soccer wanted from this and this player. I think over the last five years, I've changed a little bit in that. I, I've seen some more flexibility from certain coaches. I've seen some more flexibility from certain clubs. And I've sort of understood that the, the approach to the development academy at the start had more to do with the cautiousness uh, about what the actual league was going to be about. And I think that over the time, I've, I've grown to accept that not everything is great in the development economy, but there are certain teams and clubs that are doing things that, that have improved the level for the player. That said, it's, it's, still, it's still not a perfect system and it still has room to grow, but I don't think there's anyone who would defend the development academy and say that it's perfect. What about, well, I guess we should probably tell people too that you're actually a coach. You, you coach club soccer and you coach high school soccer too, right? Or coached high school soccer? So I'm, I'm now a former coach. Uh, I think the last <laughs> time we chatted, I was working for a club down in L.A. Uh, we, we can get into that briefly because I, I think the, the story is interesting enough. But I, it's just I, I had 
previous experience coaching uh, for a club in Santa Barbara, and then I moved down to Ventura, and then I tried to coach in L.A. I had it about six months while I was coaching for one of the big clubs down in L.A., and I ended up getting run out by a group of parents for the team. I was coaching a U8 boys team. They didn't appreciate my approach to coaching. They didn't appreciate uh, my beliefs uh, that I was preaching patience over results immediately that I sort of wanted to teach the boys more about the game of soccer and less necessarily about scoring goals all the time. Uh, and I, I think it didn't sit well with that club just because of how much those parents are paying for their kids' spots on the team, what they, how much they value this, uh, the coaching that they thought they were getting elsewhere. Uh, so it just didn't work out. And after that experience, I decided to take a, a break for or a little hiatus for uh, a time being. Um, as anyone who's gone through a negative coaching experience will know, you, you sort of want to step back and reevaluate things. And I think I was just handed the team from hell. And uh, the, the experience taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about uh, aggressive parents. It taught me a lot about unrealistic expectations. Uh, but I, I'm glad I had the experience. I'm not saying the club's name just because I appreciate the opportunity. And I do <laughs> think the club's doing good things with the older age groups. I just think at the younger age groups, it sort of struggled to identify uh, coaches who are coaching to develop rather than coaches who are coaching for results. No, it's a, it's a good point. And, and again, not having done a pre-interview, I, I didn't expect our conversation to go in this route, but the expectations that coaches set are super important because that's going to guide how you manage different situations, right? So if you're going in with this expectation that you want a long-term development uh, plan and your parents have a completely different expectation where they want results, no matter the age, right? So if it, whether it's U8s or, or U18s, it, if, if there's two different sets of expectations and there's no bridge um, between those, really that I think that comes down to communication. No, I'm not, I'm not evaluating your situation at all, JR, so sorry. Um, no, no, you're, but, you're completely right. I feel like I did a terrible job at the beginning of the season uh, advocating for that. And I also felt like I walked into a situation where the club had sort of established the, this coach is only with this team for this many months and then the team moves on to go work with someone else. So none, yeah. of the, none of the parents had this mentality that, oh, we're in this for the long haul. They were just, oh, we're in this for seven months, eight months, however long it's going to be, and then we're going to move on to a different coach, and then hopefully my kids put on the A team or my kids put on this team. So it, I walked into a bad situation. I was naive in my approach, and then I didn't do a good job communicating what I was trying to focus on once I got there. So it, it, was, it was a struggle for me, but like I said, it was a great learning experience, and and I'm glad I had the opportunity to do it. I maybe maybe I can talk a little bit about how you and I even even came to meet. And I was kind of just like a frequent visitor at StubHub, watching national team training sessions and watching youth national team games and camps. And that's where I I think I came to to meet you. We were I think we shared the hillside at StubHub. Um, many, many times together. And, <laughs> and my, my main reason for going down has always been to, to go and observe Brian Clyburn. And so one of the things that Brian, I think has been a master of over the years is exactly what we're talking about now is, is 
communication and and communicating those those expectations to people. And and somebody posed a, a interesting question the other day, and I can't remember if it was in the three four three membership forums or if it was on Twitter. I I can't remember exactly, but but somebody asked if the parents of Brian's teams care that he cusses in front of the kids. And, and the response was no, because the parents know that nothing is malicious to their kids. Like if Brian drops an F-bomb, it's not because, you know, he's, he's, you know, he hates the kid or anything like that. It's just that that's just the passion that's coming out. And Brian's done a, a very good job of communicating and, and proving that, you know, he he loves the kids and he's there to improve the kids and he's there to work on their behalf and he's willing to do whatever it takes and so i've personally never seen a better example especially in in youth soccer but i've never seen a better example in soccer in person uh and that could be that could very well be because of my my lack of experience with watching you know other teams but i i I do think that brian is a special case but i've never seen a better example of a person communicating the way that Brian does. And, and to me, it's a very special example. And I think the that, thing that's it, always like stood out to me about Brian is like how genuine he is too. Yeah. Like, like you can see other coaches and you're kind of like, it, it seems like you're putting on a show either for the parents here or for whoever else is here. Maybe there's a youth national team scout there or whoever it is. But like with Brian, it's just like, it's always felt like it was genuine. Like this real emotion for whether he, he cared about the kid or he cared about the play or he cared about whatever was going on in the game. He had this, this genuine quality to him that like even before his team sort of like took off to be famous and he took, he took off to the galaxy or or whatever. He he was still the same coach. Like it, it didn't matter like what Jersey his kids were wearing. He brought that same intensity and that same care to the players. And that that's always stood out to me too about his approach. Yeah, it's 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 pretty funny. I had a conversation with him the other day, and he was telling me about how he worked at like a fucking like a Kinkos or something like that, and and that from like from such a young age, him and his brother Gary have have always had the same mentality. Like they they want to be like the absolute best at, at whatever they're doing, whether it's Kinkos or working at LA Galaxy, right? And so they've had like this savage mentality where they go into work, and it's like you know I'm here to be the absolute best, and that. That feeling, uh, or or, or people, I guess a better way to put that is people notice that, and they notice like you've noticed that it's genuine. And so, the feedback that I've that I've gotten about Brian, not that I'm you know trying to get feedback from other people, but but people tell me you know their observations about Brian quite often, and and that has been you know one of the number one things that comes back is that you know he he's fucking genuine, like he he means everything that he, that he says and he he loves everything that he does and he loves all the kids that that he coaches and and he wants to be the absolute best in the sport and i think that's a very difficult uh difficult thing for for coaches to to portray sometimes like to be to absolutely just be themselves on the sideline like that's that's for whatever reason you know everybody has their reasons they don't do it but for whatever reason it, it's hard for some people and and to to master that in a way that Brian has is I think super special and and um, it doesn't get enough credit I think so having yeah. somebody having having somebody like you that's gone through 
you know, the club coaching grinder, uh, in LA that, that knows the, that knows the landscape. I think you, you, you can kind of come back as, as I have too. And, and you look at the situation with a little bit of humility, like, dude, this guy navigated that and came and, and has been able to produce this like that. That's, you know, quite amazing. And, and, um, I, I'm, I'm curious how that has maybe your experience through that grinder. I'm, I'm curious how that's kind of shaped or affected the way that you write about the sport now. Has it, has it changed the way that you, that you look at it? I think like immediately after the situation happened, I feel like I, I maybe became a little more passive about it. Um, I'm not sure why I just felt like I, I stepped back and I was just like, man, this is a completely different experience, but I feel like I found my footing a little bit more and, just to go back to like Brian, I mean, there, there was that uh, hesitation when he was first hired by Galaxy and when he was first sort of brought over there. Like, would he lose his personality? Would he sort of lose those traits now that he was with the, the big academy in L.A., now that he was in charge of uh, sort of th- this team that was supposed to be developing players for the first team and now that, that he was under the microscope a little bit more. But I feel like Brian's always kept his personality and that's that's one of the things that's always stood out for me because it's, it's, it's rare. Like you mentioned, it's rare to see that from the sideline, even at the elite club level, club level in the United States, you don't see that all the time. You, you don't see coaches who have that personality and who carry it from game to game and who carry it from team to team. And that was something I appreciate from him. And that's something that I was trying to bring as a coach myself to, to the teams I coached. What are some of the highlights that, that you think back on, over your over the course of, of covering you know so many uh, boys and girls national team camps and and you know development academy playoffs and finals and and generation Adidas and and all kinds of high level tournaments. What what are some of the highlights that that you kind of reminisce about? And or maybe maybe a better way to, to to phrase the question would be what what situations have kind of helped um, mold you into the the coach that you are want to become or or the the writer that you are want to become i feel like when i was started covering these national teams ugo prez had just like started working with the 98 age that's right that's right that's like josh perez christian pulisic that group he had started working with them and amazingly enough he'd pretty much given me all access to whatever i wanted whenever i wanted to see his cans and not many people are probably familiar with the structure, but these national team camps happen about six times a year for most part for, for most teams uh, domestically. And they're usually a week long. Uh, they, they usually get about two scrimmages in the rest of the time they're training. Uh, so, so there was a certain standard to it. He comes in there and he changes everything. He wants the kids to fly in in the morning so his team can be training by the afternoon. So he's maximizing these seven days he has with the players. He added extra camps so he could have more time to work with them. He, he, he changed pretty much everything that had been put in place just to sort of add his flair to it. And to me, I've never quite seen a coach like him since him. Uh, there's just There hasn't just been a coach who's had that sort of determination uh, to make this sort of thing happen. And I, I feel like it's, it's been a frustrating part of this job is that he's kind of gone. Like he's not gone. He still works for a development academy in Northern California, but 
when you rewind time and you look back at those first camps that I covered, I've never sort of had the same experience. And I don't want to talk negatively about the coaches who are currently in place because for the most part, they're hospitable. They, they welcome coverage. They welcome me being there. They, they enjoy showing off what their teams are accomplishing. But it was just a, a different environment with him in charge and him leading that age group. It was like it was almost like uh, he he came in and he just like shook things up or turned or turned everything kind of like upside down and brought a new approach to how you know they were gonna introduce these kids to the national team program because U14 is where the kids get you know the they get to put on the jersey for the first time and that was Christian's first experience with the national team and Josh's first experience with the national team and and things like that so it's like they got this this great energy right off the bat and then uh and then hugo leaves which is something that he's never to my knowledge talked publicly about and i'm i'm curious if if you still have any dialogue with with hugo and and does he provide any insight to you uh you know on on you know his situation today or or anything at all because he's for the most part kind of radio silence yeah, I haven't talked to him in some time. I mean, uh, we talked a few times after he was let go from U.S. soccer. And, and we, we talked about stuff off the record. And we ta- talked about stuff that, that he wanted to accomplish in the future. But he never really wanted to talk on the record about what happened with U.S. soccer. And from parents, my understanding was that U.S. soccer basically put it to Jurgen Klinsmann we have this coach with the U-17s, Richie Williams, who, who's running the U-17 program and who's trying to pull up the kids from Ugo's team to the 99 age group, the Tyler Adams, the Nick Tagui, the Edwin Lara, the, those boys. Uh, he, uh, Richie was trying to pull them up to the U-17s and use them with the U-17s, and Ugo was kind of doing a little back and forth about who should get the players for certain events, et cetera, et cetera. And it eventually came down to these two coaches aren't working together. And Jurgen Klinsmann said, we're going to go with the U-17 coach. Now, that's just the secondhand recap of what I was told happened. Obviously, there's probably other sides to that story. Obviously, that's probably not the full side. But I don't know if we'll ever actually hear the full side. And that's one of the problems uh, we get with soccer is because the soccer world is so small that it feels like if you piss off one person, you might not get another opportunity. And it's crazy to think about things that way, but it's kind of the way things go. If if you're connected with the right people, like if you're the Richie Williams in this scenario, your U-17 team can fail, but you're still going to get promoted to the men's national team as an assistant coach. But if you're Ugo Perez in this scenario... Your U16, your 15 teams could be successful, win tons of games, develop tons of players, but you're going to get kicked out of the program. So that's why I feel like you're probably not going to hear the dirty secrets of U.S. soccer much, if at all, in the future, just because of how connected the environment really is and how scarce people are for actually telling the truth. What about from your side of of that coin? So you just talked about, you know, Richie and Hugo and, and Klinsman and, and nobody really being able to, or, or wanting to tell the story on their end. What about on your end and, and covering these, these stories? Do you ever feel the pressure 
of of not being able to write something the way that you want to write it or about a topic that you want to write about uh, because of you know, the fear of losing access or, or things like that, because that's commonly mentioned when it comes to, you know, the way that U S soccer handles media. I definitely felt like I felt that way a lot more before, like maybe three or four years ago. I definitely felt that way. I mean, before I feel like U S soccer, the, the PR side of it, they, they've sort of uh, taken a step back from being like the bullies or the hound dogs of wherever you want to call it media. And they sort of realize like people are just going to pay attention to us no matter what. So let's be a little bit more open and upfront about things. I don't know if that's changed because of the personnel that they've hired or, or whatever. But in the past, I've definitely been reluctant to report on certain things because I felt like, well, if I say this and this, I know it's going to deny me the ability to cover to a camp or the, the ability to go out to a certain game. So I have to like be careful with my words in those scenarios, but I definitely haven't felt that way in the past few years. And I'm not sure what's changed, but I feel like something has changed. Maybe it's just the fact that, you know, media is so accessible now and so many people are covering the game. And, and I, I, I don't think it's, you know, to the point where we have, so much independent media that's covering the game the way however they want to cover it but there is to some extent you know more eyes on uh, blogs and and other podcasts and things like that so maybe u.s soccer feels they can't control the message as much as 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 they used to be able to um i i think to to some extent they've they've you know become a little bit more lax but in in other in other regards they they've also you know kept the the <laughs> kept kept the doors closed pretty tight uh when it comes to like what goes out in mainstream media and, and I, i'm talking specifically about like you know what goes out on fox or espn or the actual mls website or, or things like that you know the things that they actually actually can control yeah, I, I definitely think what you what you're saying is, is definitely part of the reasoning. And like you're saying, they they do still have a, a major influence with their their content providers or partners or whatever you want to call Fox and ESPN and uh, the MLS soccer website. So I, I definitely think that ha- has played a role for them. So we because we have our strict uh, Champions League deadline <laughs> that is approaching pretty quick. Um, I I, I want to get your uh, your answer to this question, because I feel like you and, and the rest of the guys at top drawer have a very unique perspective on the way that things kind of go down in, in American soccer. So if not, if I'm, I'm going to ask you, I was gonna say, if I were to ask you, but I'm going to ask you, um, what are things that you think people need to know about American soccer? <sighs> okay. it's, a, it's a weird question right <laughs> I, I think about it from different perspectives i think for like the common fan the common fan of like the professional game the common fan of champions league or, or what have you what you need to know about american soccer and i'll talk specifically at the youth level is at this point we aren't developing that many good players and you can point to lack of coaching you can point to lack of scouts you can point to wherever you want but at the end of the day, it comes down to we're not incentivizing, uh, we're not encouraging, and, and we're, we're not at the point where we're actually helping clubs develop players because we're restricting the pathway. 
we're restricting um, sell-on rights, we're restricting all these things, which make it impossible for us to create an open market for players to be developed. So I, I think the thing that's missing from U.S. soccer it is an open market that can actually happen. And I think that affects everything from the top-level game in terms of making the game popular or the most popular sport in this country down to the youth level, which is still struggling to create uh, a proper environment to continuously develop professional players. That's so funny that you went that direction because that's exactly how Eric Stover, the C, the COO, sorry, um, the COO of New York Cosmos, he he mentioned something very similar, and and the lack of participation in the international transfer market is a big, humongous, fat hindrance on the development of American soccer players. And the example that he gave, and, and he's given this to me, you know, numerous times in off the record conversations. Um, but he likes to give the example or the example of Germany's national team, and he likes to use Christian Pulisic as the, the American national team example. So we have Christian Pulisic. Well, okay, Germany has five Christian Pulisics at every single position. So we have one player, and they have you know players lined up, chomping at the bit to, to take the other person's spot in the starting lineup. So that's really the state of development or, or the state of uh, or the level of the United States game at the moment, which is... I think an accurate picture and a very concerning picture at the same time. And, and I'm glad that, that you chose that direction to, to kind of identify, because I do think that is something that people need to be more aware of and keep an eye on. Yeah. I think a lot of people look at the youth game and they're like, where is the next Christian Pulisic? And there isn't another one. I mean, there, there, there's not going to be another one for the next decade. There, Christian was a perfect storm. He, he wasn't an uh, indication of things like improving. He was the perfect, perfect example of how things could go in an ideal world if you hit the lottery. He, he had the ability to get an EU passport. He, he was a, his father was a professional soccer player and knew how to develop a kid, but also had the right mentality in terms of not putting too much pressure on his son. And then he just got the right opportunities. He, he found the right club. He then got into the right spaces. And all these sort of things just worked out perfectly for him. And then eventually he found the perfect agent. And then he signed with the perfect club. So, I mean, like, you look, you look at Christian as an example of U.S. soccer improving. It's not necessarily the case. Christian was uh, almost uh, a rarity that shouldn't almost be used as an example. I think he, if you're looking for something like that, you're almost looking at, like, a Weston McKinney who, who plays for Schalke and who's in Germany and who's trying to break through, but he's, he's going to struggle with playing time in the future. And that club's probably going to replace him. Like you mentioned, like Germany lines up kids to compete for these spots. And we need to find those players who are, who have the competitive advantage and who, who can step in and do that type of thing. I mean, U S soccer's goal, the mantra that they have is they want to make soccer the most popular sport in the United States. And I, I think you and I look at it from a similar perspective. Great. If you want to make soccer the most the most participated in and the most popular sport in the United States, open up the market. Let let the market push it forward. Instead, we're we're sort of stuck with MLS dictating the way things go in this country, and it hasn't really worked out for the last twenty years. Jr., this is why I like you, man. 
you, you talk about stuff that I'm interested in talking about. And, and to be honest, this is why I started a podcast is because I was sick of hearing people talk about, uh, you know, scores and uh, injuries and whatever, you know, bullshit they, they think is important for people to know. But there's hundreds of those types of shows and, and there's very few people that are willing to say what you just said. Uh, with the type of, uh, you know, or sorry, that are in the type of position that you're in as well. So you're, you're somebody that, that does, you know, have a little bit of insider uh, knowledge and for you to kind of, you know, step outside of, of that comfort zone and, and say these types of things, I think is very important. And I, I commend you, man. I, I'm fortunate because I'm, I'm independent in the respect. MLS has no control over top door soccer. I don't really need anyone to, to back us at any point, but there's a lot of journalists out there who are almost dependent on, on a paycheck from MLS soccer or, or from some other entity that's, that's tightly connected with the professional realm of us soccer. And it makes it more difficult for those individuals to speak up about this. But I don't feel like my opinion is, is anything outlandish or my opinion is anything that's unique. I feel like there's a lot of people out there who sort of are starting to see this and who sort of understand this is where we need to go in the future. But like you said, they're afraid to speak up because they have these jobs that like require them to be buddy-buddy with MLS soccer. One of the, the common threads from my interview this morning, so I interviewed Rishi uh, Sagal this morning and then uh, and then Eric Stover right after, and something that came up in both of those, and, and I'd love to just repeat again so that way it gets out there for a third episode, um, is the fact that, and Rishi was the one that mentioned it, is that sometimes you know we have good intentions and sometimes things are good, but sometimes good enough isn't good enough. And so to have voices like yours that, that do challenge, um, you know, the status quo or the, the, you know, the current system, the, the way that things currently are it in, in the, in a way that, you know, is saying, Hey, things are good, but things can be better. I, I think that's the, that's something that we need more of. And, like I said, I think that you're doing a good job of, of doing that and saying that, you know, you know, this is good. The DA is good, but Hey, open it up and let everybody participate and it can be better. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I just, I, I commend you, man. I, I appreciate you guys and the work that you guys do over at top drawer. And I, I hope in the future when we talk the next time there, there's progress on that front. I mean, I, I felt like that's why we paid so much attention to the presidential election for us soccer was because, there's finally a candidate who is willing to speak up and Eric Winalda and who is actually able to point to the things that needed to change in U.S. soccer. Unfortunately, it didn't necessarily work out the way that many, not necessarily expected, but hoped for. And we're sort of left with a, a repeat of the, of the previous regime. But I think the more pressure that individuals put on uh, moving the game forward and the more attention that your podcast and others do to, to help you improve that, the, the better off U.S. soccer will be in the future. All 
All right. Thank you to J.R. Eskelson for coming on the show and for sharing his stories and his experiences. It was good to catch up with J.R. I hadn't talked to him in quite a while, so I'm glad that I got to do that. And I'm super glad that I got to share that opportunity or share that conversation with you as well. If you'd like to find more episodes of the 343 podcast, you can do that by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. And just a reminder that you can find all the benefits of becoming a 343 Coaching Education Program member while you are there. And here's Colton Bly to talk a little bit about his experience as a 343 Coaching member. Like you have to, if you want them to adopt a behavior, adapt a behavior, you have to rehearse and you have to choreograph. And when I, like I said, when I first heard that from Brian in the Brian in the introductory course, I'm like, that makes so much sense seeing his uh at the time chivas players doing their building out of the back choreography and then all of a sudden that changing to a game clip where they are doing that and they are having success and they are able to you know break lines into the midfield or pull the opponent out of shape whatever it works and that's one thing that i've taken and not just in the form of building out of the back but also in the attacking patterns and even in the defensive moment of the game uh running through rehearse movements on how our how we press when we're defending in the attacking third or how we defend as a block and where all players need to be to keep our you know horizontal and vertical compactness in the mid in the middle third of the field when we're defending so the benefits of rehearsing these things is huge you see it translate to the game and it helps your team you can find all of the benefits of that 343 coaching education program at 343coaching.com All right. Thank you for listening. And we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 podcast.